Good afternoon, Storehouse. Would you please remain standing for the reading of God's word? And this is uh, out of Matthew uh, chapter 6, verses 9 through 14. And it says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I hope y'all are doing well. My name is Marco, and I serve as a preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. In the event that you just walked in and didn't catch Luis, we're going to find ourselves in Matthew 6, beginning in verses 9, and we're actually going to go all the way through verse 15. So while you open or load your Bibles, just a couple of quick things for you. If you're new, we'd love to hang out with you, and so I would invite and encourage you to fill out one of our Connect cards so that we can hang out or get the opportunity to pray for you. In addition to that, uh, the summertime tends to be kind of a slower paced season for us, and a lot of times people catch up with a lot of the things that we have had going on. On our website, we release a bunch of content and resources for you to grow as disciples of Jesus. And so I just wanna encourage you, when you get a chance, visit our website, download some of that free 99 content, and I hope that you are blessed by it. With all that being said, once more, we're gonna find ourselves in Matthew 6, verses nine through 15. I don't know if you're a fan, but in 1969, the song, My Way, was revealed by, or released by Frank Sinatra. And part of the lyrics of My Way include this. Here's what he says, it's not on the screen, so we just get to think about it and hear the song in our heads. Regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do, I saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much, much more. I did it. I did it my way. To some degree, each one of us can resonate with those lyrics because there's so much to our lives that we desire to do things our own way and under our own control. In week two of our series on prayer, we come to consider what has been historically known as the Lord's Prayer. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this section of scripture. Maybe you recited it when you were young. Maybe you come from the Roman Catholic Church, and this is something that may uh, be familiar to you. This series on prayer, as I mentioned last week, is meant to examine the prayers of Jesus, which additionally include the high priestly prayer and Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. My prayer for you in this series is that communion with God through prayer would be prominent in your life and it would be prominent in the life of our church. And so as we examine the Lord's prayer, unlike the words and philosophy of Frank Sinatra's My Way, we're going to notice that the Lord's prayer, and here's your main idea, we're going to notice, notice that the Lord's prayer is a template of dependence and surrender of our will to God's will. The Lord's Prayer is a template of dependence and surrender of our will to God's. And so before we dig into the text, let me pray and we'll jump right in. God, we begin by praising you because you are good. You are good in ways that we can't even fathom. 
God, we praise you because you are amazing. The work that you have done for us through Jesus. We praise you because you are gracious, constantly pouring out your grace onto us so that we would be comforted by you but also conformed to the image of Jesus. God, we are in need. We are in need of you and your grace. We are dependent on you. God, we just admit right out of the gate that we are weak. And so as we examine the Lord's Prayer today, as we examine Matthew 6, would you give us believing hearts? Would you comfort our souls? And would you give us renewal and steadfastness this afternoon? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we go. As we observed last week, the Lord Jesus in Matthew 6 is responding to his disciples as they asked him to teach them how to pray. Last week, as we observed the first half of this section, we saw that Jesus began to teach his disciples by telling them and teaching them how not to pray. And you can visit that sermon on our website if you weren't here. In this section, beginning in verse nine, Jesus now turns his attention to his disciples and to us in teaching us how to pray. That's the whole point of the beginning of verse nine. So Jesus opens up this section by saying, hey, don't pray this way, and then we come to verse nine and he says, instead, pray like this. And before we dig in, here's what I wanna emphasize. The Lord's Prayer is a template In other words, it's the Lord Jesus teaching us how to come before the Father in prayer. The Lord's Prayer is wonderful to memorize. In fact, I would encourage you to, but memorize it for the sake of cultivating a prayer life, for communing with God, for abiding in God, for learning how to pray confidently, honestly, and humbly before God. I want you to notice that in this prayer, in this section, it contains two categories. In each category, there are three petitions, and we're gonna examine each one of them. For our purposes today, however, we're going to look broadly at the Lord's Prayer and intentionally spend the most time on verse 12 and then 14 and 15, and you'll see why later on. Until we get to those verses, let's examine the first category, which consists of the character of God. Jesus begins in the second half of verse nine by saying, our Father in heaven. That's how he begins to teach us how to pray. And this would have been seen as something mind-blowing to the disciples, and it should be mind-blowing to you and I as well. You see, praying and viewing God as Father was something that wasn't really done by Israel in the Old Testament. Additionally, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, would not have related to God as Father because to them, though they had all of this extensive knowledge about the Holy Scriptures, they would not relate to him as Father because they believed that to be way too intimate. And here Jesus with his disciples and with you and I leads us to begin by praying our Father. Jesus invites us to learn, to know, and to be reminded that God is a loving Father and that we are his children. In other words, the reason we're able to come before the Father as children is because we belong to him through Jesus. 
Jesus has reconciled us to the Father through his work on the cross. That word reconciled or reconciliation, that's, that's relationship language, that we have been brought into a relationship with the Father through Jesus. Therefore, we can approach God humbly, confidently, honestly, we can approach him as a child approaches their father. Secondly, by beginning with the word our, Jesus helps us to realize that prayer isn't simply about our individualistic needs, but prayer or our prayer life concerns others. It's a gut punch to our culture that values individualism because in prayer, not only am I communing with God because of the relationship I have to him, but prayer also forces you and me to confront the realities of our heart and to consider our brothers and sisters around us. When we begin our prayers by acknowledging the Father, it rightly humbles us, it greatly comforts us, and it also reminds us of who we are and who God is. Additionally, Jesus prays, hallowed be your name. I used to think that the word hallowed was this declaration. It was a very sacred word, and it kind of is, but the word hallowed is, uh, it, it means sanctified. So it's not so much a declaration as much as it is a request. And the request is for God's name to be sanctified, not in the sense that God needs to become holy, he already is holy, but in the sense that his name is treated as holy. <clears throat> that I and we would cherish the name of God above everything else, that his glory would be made known, that his work in Christ would be exalted, that his name would be glorified above every name in our lives personally, in our lives corporately as a church. That's the first petition. The second one concerns God's kingdom. This is the beginning of verse 10. He goes on to say, your kingdom come. This deals with our allegiance to God and the advancing of his kingdom in our lives uh, and those around us and then those who do not know Jesus. See, the entire story of redemption is a story about the kingdom of God being made known from Genesis all the way to Revelation. In Genesis, God made himself known through creation of Adam and Eve and the dominion he gave them was representative of his own dominion. Even after sin entered into creation, God would still make his kingdom known and advance through the coming of the Lord Jesus. When you read through the gospels, one of the most common things that you hear Jesus say is, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, it means that we are pledging allegiance to his rule, his sovereignty, his dominion. As a result, we live in a way that is centered in the unfolding of his plan. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are asking him, uh, we are asking for his reign to rule in our hearts. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are looking ahead to the future of what is to come. 
To the Romans, Paul says it this way, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So it's the way in which we live. It's the way in which we live among one another. And it is the way in which we cultivate joy in spite of our circumstance as a result of God dwelling in us. The third petition is found in the second half of verse 10. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, once said, when your will is God's will, then you will have your will. God's will here refers to God's revealed will, that is, what, ha- what he has revealed to us in his word. In other words, whatever God has revealed to us in his word isn't simply meant to be information, but adoration, submission, worship, obedience, even us denying ourselves. In doing so, we're praising God for the goodness of his word and works and asking our hearts to be dominated by his will, his word, his work. When we pray like this, we reject self-assertion, we reject vanity, we reject arrogance, we reject complacency. We reject the desire to build our own kingdoms where we try to be God. And then, ironically, angrily, ball up our fists because God didn't give us the kingdom that we were building. Paul Miller, in his book, A Prayer Life, goes on to say this. At the center of self-will is me, carving a world in my image. At the center of prayer is God, carving me in his son's image. He adds, the great struggle of my life is not trying to discern God's will. It is trying to discern and then disown my own. When we're constantly asking and searching for God's will, the question is, and are we, are we finding it in God's word? See, his will and his word are always parallel. They run together. God has made his will known to us. All right? We walked through 1 Corinthians earlier this spring, and one of the things that Paul tells the Thessalonians in chapter four is, hey, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. And whatever circumstance you find yourself in, this is God's will for you. He has made it known to you. See, the first half of the Lord's Prayer begins with petitions centered on his character through his name, his rule, and his will. And so now we come to the second category in the Lord's Prayer. Where the first one dealt with God's character, this second category introduces our personal needs. After all, if prayer begins with us recognizing that we belong to God as children, one of the best things that our children do is ask for things. Therefore, a couple of encouragements. Do not be afraid to ask God for things. He's a good father. 
And as we noted last week, he rewards us by responding to us. Doesn't mean you're always gonna get a yes, but he responds to you because he cares for you and he loves you. He's not irritated by you. He doesn't neglect you. He is not absent. He's not short on time. He doesn't have a short temper. He wants to hear from you even when he already knows what you got. Further, I would add a couple of things to consider when asking God for things. First, God is not a genie and he's not your personal advisor. He is Lord, okay? He is who we first turn to with all of our questions, all of our doubts, our decisions, our uncertainties, our requests. We don't make a plan and then ask God to bless it and then get mad because he didn't. We don't rub a lamp and make a wish. God is Father, yes, but he is also holy and all-powerful and magnificent. Further, I would add that as you go before the Lord, do not ignore godly counsel. That's one of my favorite pieces, bits of conversation with uh, people, right? Where someone comes up with a plan and, and they say, man, we executed this plan. They're like, oh man, you know, who did you talk to about it? Did you, did you seek prayer, number one? Did you seek counsel, number two? And there's like, no, God confirmed it, so therefore we did it. I'm not saying you should... Like, that's not legit, but sometimes, I'm talking to the individuals, and this might be you, right? I'm talking to the individual who's just saying that so that you don't get pushed back, right? God is not a genie. He's He's not your advisor. He is Lord. Here's what I would tell you. I never want you to embrace this kind of particular teaching. Jen Johnson, who is a, 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 a leader, a pastor for Bethel Church, here's what she says concerning the Holy Spirit. She says, the Holy Spirit to me is like the genie from Aladdin, and he's blue, and he's unplanned, and he's perfect. He's funny, and he's sneaky. He's courageous. That's who he is to me. That is the biggest piece of heresy that you could ever listen to, okay? God has made himself known through his word. He has made his will known to us through his word. He has made himself known to us through Jesus, and as a result of Jesus' work for us, we have been reconciled to the Father. We have the Holy Spirit who dwells and resides in us and makes himself known in us. He is not sneaky, he is God. He is not a genie, he is Lord. He is not unplanned because his will has been revealed. Just because you don't like it doesn't mean he's the one with the issue. Additionally, just because God hasn't given you a yes doesn't mean he doesn't love you. One of our resident theologians, Alan Morales, he preaches up here every once in a while. He said it best earlier this week as we were studying the text. Alan goes on to say, God is a father who wants what is best for us and it is he who defines what best is. <laughs> so humble. <laughs> Communion with God means abiding in him. It is not Burger King. We do not commune to have it our way. That came from Chewy earlier this afternoon. (laughs) So let us consider 
the first petition of the second category, verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. One pastor said it this way, bring your need, not your greed. When Jesus teaches us to pray for our daily bread, he's teaching us to ask for provision for what we need. This is physical and material needs. And sometimes Christians are afraid to ask for physical and material needs. Once more, Paul Miller goes on to say, we shy away from prayers that invite God to rule our lives. They make us vulnerable. And so when it comes to praying physical needs or or material needs, oftentimes a lot of Christians shy away from that because not only is God going to rule over that, it's like, what if he says no? What if he thinks this is a dumb request? What if he rejects me? Therefore, I'm just gonna go and earn it. I'm just gonna go and work it. I'm just gonna go and ignore him. I'm just gonna go and do my own thing and hope that I would get, earn, receive X, Y, and Z. Here it is. Whether it's financial, marital, food, health, jobs, parenting, etc., you are asking the Father to provide for what you can't. And he delights to hear from you. In asking for provision, part of the reason we don't like it isn't just because we're vulnerable, because it means we're dependent And that's exactly what this prayer is teaching us how to do. It is teaching us to be dependent on God. So ask. You need need a job? Ask the Father. You're in a hard season and you need relief? Ask the Father. Going through financial things, crisis? Ask the Father. Marital issues? Ask the Father. You need a new car? Ask the Father. What? I can tell you not to do it. But check it. Keep watch on yourselves. See, there's temptation in this because we know of some pastors and teachers who might say like, hey, ask for all that and God's gonna give you that as long as you have the faith. Here it is. No, no, no. That, remember what we talked about. Doesn't mean you're gonna get a yes. That's number one. But number two, Be careful, make sure you watch yourself because there's temptation in all of that from us. In other words, you get stuff and then you forget about God. You don't get what you want, therefore you deny God. Be careful. Proverbs 30, here's what the writer says. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. So the first thing I'm asking you, Lord, is keep lies away from me. Number two, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you. And say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. In short, here's what he's saying. Here's what I'm asking. Just give me what I need. And he's almost like daring us. I dare you to pray this. Just give me what I need. Because the thing is, if you give me too much, I'm going to forget about you. I'm going to be straight with you. I'm going to forget about you. And if you don't give me anything, if you don't give me what I need, I'm going to curse you. So I'm positioning myself to be fully dependent on you. Just give me what I need. Do we pray like this? The first one, the first petition in this second category has to deal with provision. Do you have a need? Ask the Father. Ask the Father. Secondly, we come to our sin and those who have sinned against us. Verse 12, forgive us our debts 
as we also have forgiven our debtors. This one, for many Christians, if not all, could be a great challenge. And I really like that the ESV uses the word debt because that's exactly what sin causes, spiritual debt. If you're in any kind of financial debt, you don't need to be reminded because you regularly get reminded in the mail. You probably get emails saying, don't forget X, Y, and Z. They're always out to refresh your memory. In addition to that, when it comes to spiritual debt, here's the thing, we often think we don't have any or we simply forget about it, and here's what I mean. For the Christian, your spiritual debt, this debt that you accrued, was paid off. It was paid off for you by someone else's credit. Do not forget that. I don't say that so that you harp on who you were and what you used to do, no. I say that so that you would fix your eyes on the grace of God for you in Christ now and forever. That's why I tell you. How was it that God dealt with you? Jesus took your place, lived the life that you cannot live, died the death that you deserve to die, and then freely gave you the grace of salvation that you cannot earn. In so doing, you belong to God through Christ. Your sin has been forgiven. Forgiven. Therefore, as we begin to talk about forgiveness, what this then tells us about forgiveness is that forgiveness is almost impossible, if not completely impossible, apart from God. Paul says it beautifully to the Colossians that Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now for the one who doesn't know Jesus, your spiritual debt through your sin is being accrued and you're either going to be the one that stands in place to pay for it one day or you can trust in someone else to cancel that debt for you and that someone else's name is Jesus. And Jesus is ready, willing to pardon all who turn to him in faith and repentance. The hard thing here is that many people don't think they need forgiveness because the logical way of thinking about it or maybe the logical way that some think about it is, well, they're not as bad as tyrants. And it's always like, well, I'm not as bad as Hitler. Yeah, I dropped the ball, but it's not like Hitler kind of esque, right? No, (laughs) that tends to, we always go to these extremes, right? But check it. It is the Christian that is well aware of their heart and their sin and the cost God paid for redemption. It is the Christian that is aware that forgiveness of sin is an absolute work of the Holy Spirit because apart from the Holy Spirit, we either walk arrogantly or we walk resentfully. Because who then takes care of justice? I mean, isn't that what forgiveness is? Forgiveness is releasing someone's sin over your heart and entrusting that God will deal with them justly. Ooh, 
That's hard. Because you're already thinking of reasons to push back with me on. Forgiveness is releasing someone's sin over your heart and entrusting that God will deal with them justly. So let's just go for it. Let's talk about forgiveness, beginning with what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not ignoring or denying sin. Many Christians are good at this. An individual sins against you, it's fine, it's cool. And I'm not talking about the grace kind of stuff, like we put that to death. I'm talking about, man, this sin hurt me, it hurt us, and I'm just gonna ignore it because I don't wanna stir the pot, I don't wanna do anything that's gonna cause this to get even more uncomfortable. No, forgiveness is not ignoring or denying sin. Forgiveness is not enabling sin. Well, that's just who I am, and that's just who they are. Forgiveness is not waiting for an apology or waiting for the other party to repent. When someone sins against you and you cross your arms and I'm just waiting for them to apologize to me, I'm just waiting for them to repent. No. You can forgive someone without them apologizing and without them repenting. What we're not talking about is whether or not they should. That's not the scenario. Not the agas. Okay? That's not the scenario. Listen to Tim Keller. Here's what he says. An unwillingness to repent on the part of the perpetrator, the one who's committed sin against you, is no excuse for ongoing bitterness, something that the Bible says will inevitably poison the soul. The author of Hebrews goes on to say this. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Forgiveness is not waiting for someone else and justifying our bitterness. Forgiveness is not trust where One has sinned against you and just go back to the way things were. Just go back and let's not talk about certain things. Let's just pick up where we were. No, it's gonna be hurtful on many occasions and it doesn't mean that you have to give trust that quickly. In the case, for instance, in, 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 a, in, a, in a marital scenario, if there's adultery that takes place, you don't just jump back into where it used to be. It has actually caused ripple effects in marriage. You don't just say, well, I'm gonna just trust and we're good to go. No, there are consequences, unfortunately. It doesn't mean that there cannot be forgiveness, but it does mean that there are consequences. In the case of abuse, for example, right, like, I've been called to people's homes after abuse and, and I've had a spouse tell me then I can, I can just go back. No, you're not gonna go back. That, that's not the way this works. No, you're not gonna go back. You need not only to be protected, but you don't just go back to the way things were because they said, my bad. Trust is lost quickly and is earned slowly. Forgiveness doesn't always mean reconciliation. It takes one person to forgive. It takes one person to repent, turn away from sin, right? It takes one person to repent. It takes two people to 
to reconcile. We'll talk more about that one in a bit. Well, then what is forgiveness? Well, forgiveness is trusting God's justice over yours. That doesn't mean that we don't promote justice, right? Like if someone wrongs you, you can forgive them and there are still consequences that must take place. If they broke the law, right, there are consequences. If there is abuse, there is consequences. Forgiveness is trusting God's justice over yours. You can promote justice. You can forgive and promote justice. The question is, are you following through with your own? Why? Well, because we fall short of the glory of God every day and sometimes in worse ways. Why do we trust God's justice over our own? Because we have been forgiven and drawn to God in repentance ourselves. Forgiveness means that you and I can forgive as forgiven people. We can look to Jesus, we can look to his work on the cross and see the cost of our sin and see that we were greatly forgiven. You and I can forgive because we're as forgiven people. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is grace. Forgiveness is grace. Now, that might mean you have to confront the individual. That might mean you need to rebuke the individual. To his disciples, Jesus says, this is Luke 17, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive them. That doesn't mean that you don't rebuke them. Grace means there might be restoration. Forgiveness is a God-centered, God-dependent decision to be released from bitterness and resentment. Carrie Fisher, some of you know who she is, went on to, go, went on to say, resentment is like drinking a bottle of poison, poison and hoping the other person dies. Forgiveness is a witness to a watching world. When you forgive someone else, when you extend that grace, we're not talking about consequences because those are important and those might stick. But when you forgive someone, then that is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that you can do that. See, forgiveness is integral to the message and the work of the gospel that Jesus even re-emphasizes in verse 14 and 15. He goes on to say, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Here's what Jesus means. He, uh, what he means is it's not that you're not a Christian if you don't forgive, but that you have failed to understand and accept God's grace yourself. Once more, Tim Keller writes, 
The humility that comes from admitting your lostness and the joy that comes from knowing your acceptance in Christ are simply absent. See, when it comes to forgiveness, when it comes to bitterness and resentment, too many Christians try to earn God's favor uh, by working in other areas of their life. If I just work on these other things, we can ignore this issue. When we do that, we forget that forgiveness begins vertically so that it can be produced horizontally by the power of the Holy Spirit. The petition of sin and the forgiveness of sin towards others is a reminder to ourselves that we are sinners in need of grace. And we have received much grace from the Lord, therefore we can extend that grace, we can promote justice, and we can live peaceably or at least strive for it. Paul to the Romans once more says this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Who do you need to forgive? Has bitterness taken root in you? Don't ignore it. Who do you need to forgive? Finally, Jesus concludes by addressing our weakness. This is verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You and I are dependent on God. We are sinners and we are weak and that's exactly why we need the Holy Spirit. In each of these petitions centered on our personal needs, we are expressing our vulnerability, we're expressing our weakness, and we're expressing our need to look and depend on God. Temptation itself is not a sin. It is what we do with that temptation that determines if it is sinful or sanctifying. This portion is Jesus telling us, hey, you can cry out to be protected by God, to be sanctified by God, particularly in community, right? When it comes to vulnerability, how much do you actually put on the table with one another or do you just try to muscle through your spiritual life or you're tired of muscling through and so what has happened is you're spiritually exhausted that you've become spiritually apathetic And so now you don't look to God vertically so that you would be uh, empowered, so that you would be comforted, and you don't look to one another horizontally because you just don't like it. It's tiresome. This portion is for us to be protected by God, yes, to be sanctified by God in community, to be strengthened by God as we grow in holiness. We know that our hearts are prone to wander, that there are physical, visual, spiritual dangers that are gonna surround us, that you and I will walk into trials where you and I will be tempted to sin in those trials and to move further away from the Lord, but something like the Lord's Prayer is God teaching us, beckoning us to himself. To the Corinthians, Paul tells them, hey, there's, there's always a way out. 
Here's what he says. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. My own notes, even if you look like a fool as you're escaping it, there's always a way out. The second half of the Lord's Prayer ends with petitions centered on our need for provision, forgiveness, and grace, and protection. Frank Sinatra was very aware of doing things his way. I mean, he has a song. However, it is the Christian that knows that our way is to be the God of our own universe. It's to set our own dominion and exercise our own judgment. So, brother, sister, how's that working for you? The Lord's Prayer teaches us to first look vertically so that we would see how good and how great God is. Then teaches us to look horizontally by confronting our dependence on God, our weakness, and our surrender. Here's the irony. A prayer like this forces the most authentic self in us to come out. That's the irony of a prayer like this. It's where you're at your most authentic, dependent on God, reaching out because of weakness, and surrender because it's not working out for me. When we do this, we're not just humbled. We're changed. We are sanctified. We are rewarded by God, not because we've earned his favor, but because you already have it as his child. You have it because of Jesus' work for you. And so as we pray, let us first look to God, then our hearts, and then our brothers and sisters. The Lord's Prayer is a gut punch to our individualistic needs and forces us to consider our personal needs while also addressing our communal needs. So Christian, same question from last week. How's your prayer life going? Is God your genie? Is he your advisor? Or is he Lord? Has bitterness consumed you? How's this working out for you right now? See, the temptation is gonna be, well, I'm, I'm working through it, but the Lord's Prayer says, no, put it on the table and depend on God. Not blindly, but it means actually putting it on the table. Here's what's scary, being specific. Christians are really good at Christianese. I'm just going through some struggles. What is that? Right, like just, 
Put it on the table. Specify. How's this working out for you right now? And if you're not a Christian, thank you for being here. Approaching the Lord, listen, approaching the Lord is impossible without first being reconciled to him. Which means realizing that you are a sinner under his wrath. But there is forgiveness from God in Christ through faith and repentance. Coming before the Lord in faith and repentance, not only are your sins eternally forgiven, but you are reconciled to a holy God whom we call Father. So church, the Lord's prayer is a template for our hearts of dependence and surrender to surrender of our will to God's will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love, for your love for us in Jesus. The Lord's Prayer is a beautiful template that confronts and comforts our hearts vertically in our relationship with you. It challenges and changes our hearts horizontally in our personal and communal lives. God, forgive us when we run from you in prayer. Forgive us when we run from communing with you, when we run from abiding in you. Lord, we run because we're scared, because we're vulnerable, because we're rebellious. We run because we're stubborn. Lord, some of us don't even run. We simply hide in our apathy, in our disinterests, and plainly by ignoring you. Father, you are good. We know this because of Jesus. We know this because you hear us. Therefore, change our hearts today. By your spirit, draw us near to you this afternoon. Help us to put sin to death, to grow in holiness, and to depend on you. Father, some are in really tough seasons. Comfort them. Relieve them. Give them clarity. Some are in really good seasons. Bless them. Sanctify them. Draw them close to you. Father, some are in some new seasons. Give them grace. Give them wisdom. Give them clarity. Father, some are in seasons of apathy. Ignite their hearts by renewing them, reviving their bones with the good news of your word and the grace of your work. May your will 
be our will so that we would have our will.